Take your Bible and turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord on the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the, the days of their prophecy or prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn, the wa- turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as oft as they desire. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of coming together and studying your word. Father, this is what Christ did when he was on the earth. He would come and he would open up the scroll and he would read the scroll and then explain the scroll. Explain the word. Lord, he would explain so that people would understand. People would understand what they're reading. And Lord, we do the same thing today. And we want understanding. We want clarity. We want direction for our lives. And Lord, only you can do that. Your Holy Spirit can illuminate our minds and our hearts and our lives and understand to understand these things. And then, Lord, as we've seen, we are responsible now for what we know. We have to live in light of this information. So I pray that as we go away today, that we would think through, how do we apply this? How do we live this out in our lives? But Lord, I pray that ultimately you would be honored and glorified in our time together today, and that you would be glorified with our lives on a daily basis. And we thank you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John has been recording for us, or has recorded for us, um, this seven-year period of time uh, concerning the, the tribulation. He's written it down so that we can see. What we have seen, what we've been seeing, is that God is just throwing judgments down, bombarding the earth with, with judgments and His wrath. And, um, and, it, and it's coming with fierceness now. We're getting closer to the end and, and we know that there will be a stronger and stronger pains, as it were. But what's interesting is that during this seven-year period of time where God is raining judgments and even within His wrath, we see that God is a God of mercy. And it's just like Paul had said earlier that we can see in God that there is he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we see that characteristic of God even in uh, this 
seven-year period of time called the, the tribulation. And that's surprising to me. It's surprising how much evangelism is done during this seven-year period of time. I wasn't taught that when I was growing up. When, you, when the tribulation came, boy, that was it. That was just it. But there's a lot of evangelism that's going to take place during this tribulation period. And what I've also found in my studies that's surprising is that one of the purposes of the, of the tribulation period is to revive Israel, is to save Israel. It's to restore Israel to their rightful place during this time as a, as a nation. Now, I want you to see this. This was read, read for us earlier, but turn over to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. I just want to read this one verse. We won't have to read the whole passage. It says this, I will pour out on the house of David. It's pretty specific. On the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace. God is going to show his grace upon Israel again in supplication so that they will look on me. That's God, Jesus Christ, whom they have pierced. (laughs) Folks, this was written way before the time of Christ. And, And this is a prophecy. He says, they're going to look upon him. That's, that's knowledge. They're going, to, they're going to be informed. They're going to have some information whom they pierced. That's a heart change there. And there's going to, going to be, and they will mourn. They will mourn for him as one mourns for the only son. That's, that's pretty incredible. You see, they're going, to, they're going to receive the information. They're going to realize who they've rejected. And their hearts are going to be turned. And there's going to be repentance. Someday that's going to happen. We haven't seen that. We haven't seen that in Israel yet. You have knowledge. You have uh, a heart change. And you have repentance. You say, well, what's the method? How does God do this evangelism that we see so often? Well, it's, the, it's the same as... It is today. It has to be the same that it is today. In Romans chapter 10, we see this. How then will they call upon whom they have not heard? How can Israel call on someone that they have not believed? They can't call upon Jesus because they haven't believed in Jesus. They've rejected Jesus, right? How can they call upon him who have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Now this is in... uh, Romans chapter 10 and verse 14. They have to hear. They have to hear. That's information that they don't have. There has to be hearing. They have to be believing. And then there's a calling out. A calling upon God. And how will they hear without a, what? Without a preacher. Without a preacher. And then how will they preach unless they are sent? God is the one who does the sending. We do the preaching. We proclaim the Word of God. We give people information so that they hear it. And then they believe it. And then they call upon the name of the Lord. That's the process. Then it ends like this. He says, how beautiful beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. It's a beautiful thing to, to see people witnessing for Christ. My wife is in the Dominican Republic with a bunch of kids that she uh, teaches. My son is there too. And she was saying that what a wonderful thing it is to see these kids evangelizing, sharing the gospel with these, these other kids and these people in the Dominican Republic. 
She said it's a it's a wonderful thing to to see our son uh, Colin and sharing the gospel and, and of course you know she cries of course during this she said it's a beautiful thing it's a beautiful and we we look at that and we say yes God says it is beautiful we get our cues about beauty from God and God says this is a beautiful thing the feet of those who carry the good news it's a beautiful thing to be a witness to be a witness for God, it's a beautiful thing. It's a privilege and it's an honor to be a witness for God, to share the life-changing gospel with people who don't know. Many times we're, we're like this. We're like the, the prophet Elijah who has some victories in their life. He had a victory at over 450 bells of uh, prophets of Baal that, that uh, he was able to stand against. And, and you, you know, you remember on Mount Carmel and the fire came down. But then he goes away from that victory and he kind of feels sorry for himself. For himself. So I'm the only one. Nobody else is standing for you, Lord. And God has to remind him. God wouldn't let him feel sorry for himself. And he reminded him. He says, no, put that away from me. Put that understanding and thinking away. He said, I've got 7,000 people that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. He says, don't worry about that. Many times we're like Jonah. We just say, no, we're not going to go anyway. We just say, we just say, no, that's terrible. It is a blessing to be a witness. It is a beautiful thing, God says, to be a witness. And God has his remnant. God has his people. Even in the tribulation period, he will have witnesses. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. I just love hearing that report about Fred Strumberg. It's, it's a great thing that he is a, a witness. He is a witness right there in Utah. The, one of the, the, well, the bastion of uh, Mormonism. And he's a witness. It's a witness. God has his witnesses, even in the book of Revelation. We've already seen 144,000, remember that? 12,000 from every tribe in chapter 11. We see two witnesses in chapter 7, about 144,000. Chapter 11, we see two witnesses. And in chapter 14, turn over here. This is an interesting thing. Chapter 14 in Revelation, in verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in the in mid-heaven... Mid-heaven, not up in the upper heavens, not here on earth, but mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Just in case anyone misses it, God has this angel going around and he's proclaiming the gospel as well and he's doing it to all the nations. That's an amazing thing. This angel is going around during the tribulation period. That shows us a gracious and kind and loving God even when he's pouring out his wrath. He's giving people an opportunity. He has his witnesses. He has his remnants. It's a privilege to be a witness for God. It's an honor. But it's also, folks, as we see in this passage, it's also dangerous. And for the next two weeks, I want us to see that. The focus of this passage, the whole chapter 11, is upon these two witnesses. These two witnesses. I think that we can glean some things. One of the things that I read in, in the commentaries that they say, this is the most difficult chapter in the whole of the book of Revelation to interpret to understand. This is it. This is the most difficult. Now, of course, Revelation is one of the most difficult books in the Bible to interpret. And this is one of the most difficult chapters. So this is, this is difficult. 
So what we want to do is just slow down. Now, I've been trying to take chapter at a time, but I want to slow down. And I want us to think through these things. There's some things that we have to know, we have to understand. Now, the focus is these two witnesses. What we want to see today is the location and the significance of these two witnesses. You can see that in your outline. And then we also look at the timing of these two witnesses. Now, those three things we're going to look at today. The other... Three things, the power, the death, and the resurrection of these two witnesses, we're probably not going to get to. I want to move slowly, because this is a crucial passage for us to understand uh, what's going on here. And it's a timely passage. It's important for us to, to know. So first of all, let's look at the location, the significance, and we'll throw in the time. You can write that in, the timing or the time of these two witnesses. Now, look at verse 1. Here's the location. Then... There was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Now, obviously, the location is at the temple. And that temple is in Jerusalem. And John was given this measuring rod. This would be from the reed plant that grows around the Jordan Valley there. It would be a a hollow stalk kind of thing that that, that grows. Uh, They would cut it off. It will grow 15 to 20 feet, and they would cut it off, and they would measure things with it. It could be used as a cane as well or a staff as well, and they would measure things with it. And he was instructed to measure three things, the temple and the altar and the people, and the people that is worshiping there. Now, the temple is to measure the temple. Actually, what's interesting here, now this is, by the way, this is a temple of Solomon built. It's just a representation. We don't know exactly how it looked, but this is a pretty good representation. But let me, let me just tell you this. Many Orthodox Jews, now there is no temple in Jerusalem today. So you think about, now what John is talking about here, uh, there's a, a temple in the tribulation period, but there's no temple now. So where's that temple going to come from? It's pointed out here, uh, one of the commentators that I read said this, Many Orthodox Jews today dream of building their temple in Jerusalem. But it has to go on a particular site. And he goes on to say, But its site is now occupied by the Islamic shrine known as the what? The Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock. Islam has this property now. He goes on to say, the Muslims believe that this is a place where Muhammad ascended up into heaven. And it is among the most sacred shrines of all of the Islamic world. Now, you want to know why there's struggle in the Middle East? Why there's a struggle between Islam and and Judaism? A lot of it's just land over this particular property right here. That's interesting. Now, you can look it up. They would love, and this the author is right, they would love to build a temple on this site, but they cannot. They cannot. Now, there's been three temples in the past that Israel has had. The first, uh, the first temple was uh, from Solomon. Um, Solomon built a temple in 966. I believe you can see that there. 966. And it was a glorious temple. It was the most magnificent temple that, uh, that has been in that site. Um, and remember in, in uh, Chronicles, I believe it's 2 Chronicles, that they dedicated this temple. It might have been 1 Chronicles. They dedicated this temple and God came down into this temple in the form of a cloud. So much so that they had to stop the ceremonies. They couldn't, they couldn't proceed. 
It was a glorious thing. God filled that temple and he came and lived in that temple. That's the significance of the temple that God lives in. it. This is God. This is a dwelling place of God. But in 583 or 86, somewhere around that time, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came in and he took out all the gold and destroyed, essentially destroyed that temple. Took out all the gold, all of the tools and and things from that temple. And he took them to Babylon. He took, uh, along with that, he took some of the young people at that time as well and brought them into exile, the time of exile. For 70 years they were in captivity. That would be Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. You know those, those stories. That was part of, this is part of what was happening. And so the temple was destroyed at that time. After the exile, 70 years later, some 70 years later or, or more, Zerubbabel came and he built another temple. Remember, he had to build this, he built this temple and he started on it and then they had to stop and it took them about 20 years to get through this temple. They had to stop several times and they finally completed about 515 and that was short lived too because in 168, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes came and he destroyed that temple. He desecrated it as well. In fact, I believe he's, I believe is right that he sacrificed a pig on that altar. Desecrated that. So it was no temple. But Herod the Great came along and about 19 years before Christ or so, these are, these are relative figures a little bit, 19 years before Christ, he built a temple for the Jews. Now, he wanted to be on the the good side of the Jews. And so he built a temple to the Lord. This had been the the temple that uh, Christ was dedicated in on the eighth day. Remember when he was a little baby? And it would have been the temple that when he was 12 years old that he was found in. His parents found him there learning from the... And then it was also the temple that he preached in. He had opened the scroll and preached from... The scroll in this in this particular temple, but of course this was short lived as well. It was it was destroyed. Titus came in and uh, destroyed it. Of course there was uh, more further de- devastation later. But by the time that John is writing this book of Revelation, there really there is no temple. There is no temple. No temple to God. No fat sacrificial system. It had essentially been done away with. But there's a promise of one. There's a promise of one that we see in the tribulation period. And that's the next temple that you see in in Scripture. This tribulation period. And you have a fully functional sacrificial system. You say, well, why why do the Jews have that? I mean, Christ is the final sacrifice, right? When Christ was hanging on the cross, He said, it is finished. There is no need for sacrificial system anymore. But you know what? The Jews don't know that. They have rejected their Messiah. They don't believe that. That's what needs to happen here. They need to understand that this whole sacrificial system is just needs to be just done away with. But they worship in ignorance. They worship something they do not know, uh, Jesus says. So, John was to measure the, the temple. Now, by the way, let me go back. There's three parts to the temple 
Uh, first of all, you have the, the inner temple, and that's it. Uh, thanks for going back to that screen. The, the inner temple, you see that, uh, that structure on the inside there. Inside that, this inner temple, this inner sanctuary, you have the Holy of Holies and the most holy place. Inside that, you would have a golden altar. No one was allowed into that. And once a year, the priest would, uh, would go in there and offer a sacrifice on that altar. Like I said, once a year. No one was allowed to be in there. Then you'd have the outer or the inner court, the inner sanctuary, if you will. And that would just be just outside the Holy of Holies, this holy place. And there would be another altar there. And that would be a bronze altar. That would be an altar that was used uh, constantly. It was constant. Now, no Gentiles were allowed in this section. In fact, the Jews got permission from the Romans during their time to kill any Gentile that would be in, that would wander into that, that space. And of course, they would have their temple guards and they would be guarded. They could not go in there. In fact, Paul got in big trouble because he took Timothy in there. Now, Timothy's dad was a, uh, was a Greek. Timothy was circumcised, and so Paul was vindicated from all that. There was this third part, and that's the outer court. Now, the Gentiles were allowed to come into this outer court. That's where you would have the marketplace, you would have socializing, and it would be, it really, the the temple essentially was the focal place of the society. All of Jerusalem focused around, revolved around that temple. In fact, the whole nation essentially revolved around Jerusalem. Why? Because God lived there. This was, this was God's place. And John then was to measure this temple. He was to measure then the altar as well. This would have been the bronze altar on the outside, just a little bit expanded there. But he was also to measure the worshipers. You say, well, what? This is a little strange. Why is he doing this? Well, notice in our scripture passage, there's no measurements given. That's not really the point. The point is just, John, I want you to see how many. I want you to see how small. There's just a remnant right now. Just a remnant. In fact, uh, in this in this measurement, he, he was to leave out. Look at verse 2. It says, leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given over to the nations. Given to the nations, and they will tread under foot the holy city we'll look at that in just a minute the the point is not so much the how long and how what the width and the length and the height and that stuff is one of the commentators i believe it was macarthur he said he said this he said it is best to understand this measurement as uh, signifying ownership you measure what is yours and he is, he is measuring up, God is measuring up what is his, the parameters of God's people, God's possessions. That's what's happening. All the worshipers, that whole system, that is now God's. Now here's what's happening. God is turning his attention in this tribulation period. He's turning his attention from the, the, the church and, and using the church to using Israel. And you see this right at this particular time. Israel, right now, is, is not God's chosen, God's people, possession. But they are promised that they will be someday. Right now, God is working through the church. 
We are in that special place. It's a special thing to be God's chosen. You say, everybody's, everybody's God's possession. God owns everything, right? But we are God's possession in a special way. Charles Spurgeon, that's the only thing he can come up with. It's just, it's just a special way. God loves His church, or God loves Israel. Right now, Israel's on the ch- shelf, and God is using His church. That position is, is for us. And I like what the songwriter said, From heaven He came and sought her, to be His holy bride. That's how much He loved her. With His own blood He brought her, and for her life He died. Folks, it's a privilege. It's a privileged position that we have to be possessed by God. He owns us. We are His church. We are protected by Him. We are loved by Him. It is a special relationship that we have as a church. It is a privilege. It is a privilege. And we need to see it at that. Israel someday is going to be in that position again. And the attention is going to be turned away from the, the Gentiles... And back to Israel. Now look at the timing of this. This is so important. Look at the last two or three words in verse 2. It says, tread under the foot of the holy city for 42 months. Now that is so key. Because that pinpoints where we are in this tribulation period. 42 months. Look in verse 3. In verse 3, just the next verse down. It says, and they prophesy, these two witnesses, they prophesied for... 1260 days. Now that's the same amount of time. It's three and a half years. Right in that middle point, that midway through the seven year period of the tribulation period. So now we know the location. Now we know the specific time that these two witnesses in verse three says, and I granted authority to two witnesses. So what's the significance of all this? What does this matter? Well, we first see this concept in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 9. The book of Daniel, chapter 9, in verse 27. This is the first place that we see this, this concept. Chapter 9, verse 27 says this, And he will make firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the, that week, now a week, by the way, let me just slow down here. The week, that seven periods of time, it essentially be seven years in Daniel's prophecy here. This one week period of time, in the middle of that week, that would be three and a half years in. In the middle of that week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolation. What's going on? At this three and a half year mark, this particular particular time frame and this tribulation period, something's going to happen. Someone's going to come in and he's going to put a stop to this sacrificial system. And it's going to be an abomination. And he's going to be one who makes desolation. That's interesting. That's interesting. Now Jesus picks up on this. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Now remember, Matthew chapter 24 is where Christ said, Look, I'm going to give you some signs of when I'm going to return. I don't know the day. I'm not going to give you the time. But here's some signs. And he gives us, it's really a parallel passage to the book of Revelation. 
Uh, much of the revelation is talking about the tribulation period, and Jesus just parallels that exact pace, that information. And in verse 15, he says this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, now that's the key term, this abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judah must flee to the mountains, get out of Jerusalem. Get out of that whole area. And when you see this abomination of desolation, you need to leave. Something's going to happen. Oh, I, I think I mentioned to you, um, an abomination is a, something detestable that, that has happened. I mentioned that to Antiochus Epiphanes, he came in and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. That would be an abomination. You say, well, what kind of abomination of desolation is this talking about? We'll turn over to Second Thessalonians. One more passage here. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'll show you what this is, this is talking about. We'll clear this up a little bit. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse... Well, we can start at verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we get the time frame. We understand he's talking about this. Well, let's skip down to verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you. And this is going to be a time of deception. Don't, don't let anyone deceive you, for it will not come, this second coming, this until or unless the apostasy, this turning away, this rejection and turning away comes first. And the, the man of lawlessness is revealed. So here this person is referred to again. He's referred to in Daniel as, as making some kind of uh, uh, abomination on the sacrificial system and bringing that whole thing to a halt. And here he is again, and he's called the man of lawlessness, is revealed. The son of destruction, sounds like the, sound, sounds like the same kind of guy. Who, in verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God an object of, or object of worship. So that he talk, he takes his seat in the temple of God. How arrogant. Do you think that's an abomination? Absolutely. This guy thinks that he is God. He brings a stop to the sacrificial system. No more sacrificing to that God. I am God. That's what he says. Displaying himself as being God. Skip down to verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. I mean, this whole attitude of lawlessness is already there. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. There's something that's restraining this lawless or this lawless disorder. And that, I believe, is the Holy Spirit. He's restraining this. Verse 8, then that law, lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay. With the breath of his mouth, verse 9, that is the one who comes in accordance with, a, with the activity of Satan. Now that is exactly in the tribulation period. The activity of Satan with all power and signs and wonders and with all the deception of wickedness. And we can stop right there. They're, he's describing there for us this man of lawlessness. The book of Revelation calls him the beast or you might, it might refer to him also as the, the Antichrist. 
Someone who sets himself up against God. And obviously he is arrogant. He is arrogant. And that happens. There's something that happens. He sets himself up as God. He takes his throne, God's throne, when? In that middle time of the tribulation. 42 months, 1260 days, that 300, or that three and a half year mark of the tribulation. And from there, and from there, what we see is him leading a rebellion against God and trampling underfoot the holy city for, for this 42, 42 months. So here's what's happening. Let's kind of sum this up a little bit. You see the, the beast, the, the antichrist, this man of lawlessness, this, he comes in, he offers this covenant with the Jews. For, for what, seven years. And then at the middle of that seven year point. He says no stop. And he stops that sacrificial system. He puts himself. He exalts himself. And at that point. We see verse 3. That God puts in two witnesses. Now this would be the worst place in the world to be a witness. The worst time in the world to be a witness. Because this Antichrist is going to be against God He's going to be anti-God. So here it is. Let me sum up this. This is what uh, MacArthur says this. God measures, God's measuring off Israel, symbolized by the temple, for salvation and for his special protection, uh, preservations and favor. God is, God is showing, God is wanting John to see that God is going to protect Israel as a nation. And I believe he does it by putting two witnesses, two very powerful witnesses right there. And then at that same time, this, this Antichrist is going to lead this group of Gentiles in a rebellion against God. And they're, they're going to oppress the Jews. This remnant, this small little remnant. And they're going to wreak havoc on Jerusalem at this time. So much so, folks, that God is going to have to, to take the Jews out of Jerusalem and protect them. Now look over at chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, just one chapter over. We'll see this a little bit later in a couple of weeks. In verse 6, he says this. This is symbolic language, but you'll see what I'm talking about. Verse 6, the woman fled. Now, the woman would be Israel. And they fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. God is going to protect Israel so that there, shall, that there she will be nourished for 1,260 days. Three and a half years. God's going to take Israel out and He's going to protect them and guard them, nourish them. And they will come out of the tribulation period as a nation. As a nation. And I believe it starts right here with these two witnesses. These two witnesses. In fact, I believe, because of the location right there at the temple, I believe as a result of these two witnesses, you have 144,000 people being saved. 12,000 from every nation. I believe that's what you see here. Now, I just want to sum up a little bit. John has been asked to measure these things. He's just bringing attention to this distinction between Israel and the rest of the nations are gone. These godless nations are gone. And he's, the focus is upon Israel again. 
for three and a half years in this tribulation period. And the church, I believe, is already in heaven. Now, you say, well, let's process. How do we process this? What do we do with, with this? What do we do with this? I want just to think through practically for a, a little bit. When I was growing up, Israel, actually I was born just a few years before the Six-Day War. Israel was, was the, the talk of the town. I mean, they had just be, been given some land, actually back in 1948. Now, I wasn't born in 1948. But they had been given property by the British government to, to go back into the land. And they were f- flooding into the land. It was a wonderful thing. And everybody was saying, they were pointing uh, to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 34. They were saying, this generation will not pass away. And Christ is going to come. And boy, we were pretty excited. We just thought Christ was going to come at this moment. And then, of course, you also have the late great planet Earth. A book and a movie, and then you have the the thief in, like a thief in a night. And I tell you what, we were scared to death. We were thinking the tribulation period is right around the corner at any moment. Christ can come. This is going to be it. And then I begin to read scripture, and this generation will not pass away. That is talking about the generation going through the tribulation. That's talking about those Jews who are alive during that, that generation. So we can't, we can't know. We can't mark out. We don't know. We, we can't say, okay, well, they became a state in 48, and so we mark out one generation. Some say it's 20 years. Some say it's 50 years. We don't know that. But the generations talked about theirs in the Revelation period. So we need to think practically. We need to, to see what's going on around us and go to Scripture and see what, uh, and, and apply it appropriately. Let me tell you another thing. Here's just another way of applica- applying what we're talking about. The Jews, they need Christ. They don't need Judaism. They don't need to flood back into Jerusalem. First of all, they need Christ. They need a heart transplant. They need God to work in their heart. They don't even need Messianic Judaism, where they accept their Messiah, but they're still Jews. They don't need that. They need Christ. If the rapture would come, they would be taken up. They wouldn't be left behind because they're Jews. They would be taken up with Christ because they are part of the body of Christ. So, do we help Israel as a nation or not? You've seen these commercials, right? These commercials, oh, please send us some money. This is in Jerusalem so that we can feed these starving people, these Jews that want a, a better life and homeland. And that's it's interesting. And, and I think it's really neat that Jerusalem is being flooded now with Jews or, or people are coming into the Jewish state now. But, you know, in a, in a sense, it has nothing to do with what God's going to do. And what we see uh, happening today is is not what we see in Scripture. There's nothing spiritual about what's going on in Israel now. They're, they're not looking for their Messiah. They're still far away from God. They're still, they're still sacrificing as though Christ's sacrifice was nothing. They still have rejected their Messiah. Today, God is using us. God is using the church. We are His witnesses. We are His witnesses. We are the ones that are to evangelize. We are the ones that are are to carry that good news, that message to a lost and dying world. We are the ones with the beautiful feet. And so in, in certain ways, 
I don't really care what happens to Israel now. Because what is going to happen to Israel is more of the spiritual plane. And God's going to have to take care of that. But there's one sense that I think we have to be careful. And that's when we look at Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. It says this, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Now this is God, and He is talking to Abraham. And we have to remember that. We have to be very careful as a nation, as a people. You know what? We want to be on Israel's side. We want to help Israel. We want to bless Israel. Even in their rebellious state against God. And the best way, folks, the best way is to share with them who their Messiah is, and that is Jesus Christ. We've talked about missionaries today, and we've talked about a witness today. We have a missionary to the Jews. And he is in Washington, D.C., the other state capital. He is in Washington, D.C., in that area, and his target is the Jews. And he goes after them. There are certain circles that he can get into. And he is trying to preach to them Christ. Because, folks, that's what they need. If we want to help Israel today, we present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, someday we can pray for a spiritual awakening. And that day will come. That day will happen where Israel is, is God has poured out His Spirit. And thousands and thousands of people will come to know Christ. But right now, we are His witnesses. The church is His witness. And there's a warning for us in this. It's a privilege to be a witness for, for God. We need to take that seriously. Here's what J.C. Ryle said. I just saw this little quote and I thought it was great. It's applicable. It says this. It says, the highest form of selfishness. This is a warning. Highest form of selfishness is that of the man who is content to go to heaven alone. Listen, that's, a, that's an indictment. It's an indictment to me. Am I content? As a, as a witness of Jesus Christ, as knowing the truth, am I content to just go to heaven alone? That's an indictment. Folks, we need to be out there. I need to be out there. Our ministry is outside these four walls. We have the message of Jesus Christ and we take it to a needy world Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for this, this reminder. Someday you will turn your attention back to Israel. And you will, you will save them. You will save them in the most wicked of places, in the most wicked of times. For the significance of showing and demonstrating your power. And you'll use two men to do it. Two prophets, two evangelists, two men's feet whose feet are beautiful because they're just witnessing. They're witnessing. They're presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be witnesses today for you. No matter where we go, no matter what we are, where we are and what we do, Lord, help us to just be faithful. Not drumming up a whole bunch of excitement and bring people into the kingdom in just some kind of emotional way. But Lord, just faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ until He comes. And thank You, Lord, for the privilege of allowing us to be 
witness, allowing us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our privilege. And we'll thank you and we praise you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me, please. If we can help you in any way, we'd love to be able to do that. You can talk to us uh, any time. We have our elders here. and Of course, uh, throughout the week, you can contact us. We, we are here to minister to you. We want to do that. And in many ways, we're here to just prepare your ministry. As you go out and you minister to a lost and dying world, we are His witnesses. We're called to be witnesses. Um, and let's be, let's be doing that. Let's just be faithful. And when Christ does come back, He says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Just be faithful. Let's close in praise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.